Welcome to the conversation, Hawaii Talks. This is Catherine Cruz. The push is on to get some of the thousands of short-term rentals on Maui converted to long-term rentals to help families displaced by the Maui wildfires. The county has been looking at real property tax breaks or hikes, and the state last week rolled out a program to compensate property owners for helping to house our needy families. We hanaho a story with a college student who calls Lahaina home and who is struggling with the uncertainty of what lies ahead. And of course, we have our Manu Minute for you. It has been almost a week since the state rolled out its plan to entice more property owners of short-term rentals to offer their units for families displaced by the Maui wildfires. The State Department of Human Services launched the details Friday to meet the gap of those who don't qualify for FEMA programs. We checked in with Trista Spear, Deputy Director at DHS this morning. She tells us a family of six was one of the first ones it was able to help move into more permanent housing under what's called the Rental Assistance Program, or RAP for short. Here's Spear. This is $2.5 million that Governor Green has approved for us to focus on providing innovative housing solutions for those that are FEMA ineligible. When I say innovative, it's because this program is working to break into and leverage the short-term rental market. So we're very thankful to Airbnb for their support uh, of the Maui fire survivors with those donated stays uh, for 21 days in the immediate aftermath of the fires, and then their support and collaboration with the 30-day extension that Governor Green initiated for families in the September timeframe, September-October timeframe. And this is an extension of that. This is an expansion of you know those initial programs, if you will. So for folks that are FEMA ineligible, they should reach out to Global Empowerment Mission. The email address that they can they can send an email to is hawaii at globalempowermentmission.org, or they can go into any one of the two GEM locations. They have a distribution center up in Kahana at the Old Maui Brewing Company. They also have an office in Kahului. They're standing by and ready. We also are responding to the hotels where many individuals right, are, are currently in hotels being housed by the American Red Cross and non-congregate sheltering, but their checkout date may be coming and or those individuals want to move into a more home-like setting. So as I said, we're really working to try and achieve uh, recovery for our survivors as soon as possible. And that's the mission of the Department of Human Services. Do we have a handle on how many families are FEMA ineligible? There are hundreds of families that are FEMA ineligible. And so this program is designed for individuals that are FEMA ineligible, whether they're currently in non-congregate sheltering or otherwise you know, outside of the non-congregate sheltering program. They can reach out to Global Empowerment Mission. Global Empowerment Mission will take their name, have them fill out a consent form so that their personal information can be shared with the Department of Human Services, and we can confirm that FEMA ineligibility, if you will. So how does this work? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you, you have, you know, a table, you know, with what you're able yep. to pay, right, for one bedroom, two bedrooms. What do landlords need to know if they want to participate in this and help out? So for landlords, what we're asking is if you already have your short-term rental listed on Airbnb, please pay attention to the email that Airbnb sent out asking you or instructing you how you can cancel existing reservations or change your platform to ensure that survivors who are wanting to participate in this program and be matched with a short-term rental to live in can can uh, access 
can access your home and make that reservation. So a survivor is going to be referred to GEM. GEM will work with that survivor, go into Airbnb and take a look at the housing inventory and see what's available. So if a survivor, say, was in need of a two-bedroom property, they would go on, they would look at the Airbnb platform, see what inventory is available at those price ranges, and a, a booking would be made for them. We are asking homeowners to consider allowing pets, even if they currently don't have a pet policy. Many of the animals and pets of survivors have very quickly turned into emotional support animals. And because of the trauma that the survivors uh, experience, they're really having a hard time if they need to leave their pets behind or uh, find a foster family for those pets. But at any rate, Airbnb has sent out an email to all of their property owners. If you're interested uh, in having your property be a participant in this program, we have information. You should contact uh, Hawaii at globalempowermentmission.org and Global Empowerment Mission can provide you information with how to list your property very quickly, very streamlined with Airbnb, the different selections you can make so that your property would be available solely for this program and for these survivors. So, you know, you you folks are offering... uh what, 5000 a month for, you know, a studio to one bedroom, mm-hmm. 7000 for two bedroom, 9000 for three bedroom, and 11000 for four bedrooms. Correct. So these, this market, these rates that we looked at were targeting homes primarily in West Maui area, but of course, right, uh, survivors are looking to move to various portions of Maui. The rates are w- looking at, you know, what is that? What was the average rate? What is the average rate, rate in West Maui? Because that's where survivors are indicating they want to stay. That's where their home was, and that's where they want their home to remain. And so, again, we're really thankful to Governor Green leading with equity and to Airbnb and GEMS collaboration with the Department of Human Services to continue providing human services for these survivors. And we're really hoping that the owners of these short-term rentals um, that are already listed on Airbnb will uh, enable uh, their properties to be utilized by these survivors. The survivors have experienced so much trauma. They need housing. They need consistency. They need stability. And not just the adults, but the children. Right? These families need to know where they're going to come home after work, after school, where they're going to do their homework, where they're going to cook their meals. And being able to move from a room or a hotel room into a home-like setting, a more traditional home-like setting with a kitchen, a living room, bedrooms to lay your head and sleep at night is a crucial piece of recovery for all of these survivors and for all of these households and families. I know you have just rolled this out, but you know what kind of response have you had? The response has been overwhelmingly supportive. We have uh, survivors have indicated how thankful they are um, with this innovative approach. They're being patient uh, and and nimble as we work through this process. Uh, and we've had an overwhelming support of property owners who are interested in finding out, you know, how do I list my property? How do I make my property available? And we've also been just so inspired by property owners. Um, who are already have listings on Airbnb being willing to reduce their their daily rate that they're asking for so that their home can be listed within within these um, budgeted price points that that Governor Green is supporting. You know, it, it is just stunning to think of, you know, the thousands of units that are in the short term rental pool. And, you know, we just need, you know, less than 3000 to help these families. So if, if 
these property owners can open their hearts and their homes, you know, and convert them to a, a longer term rental. I mean, that would really go a long way in, in helping to Maui to heal. It absolutely would, Catherine. And, you know, you make a good point. They say home is where the heart is. And home is where your family is. And so these short-term rental owners, they have properties that if they are willing to participate in this program and open up their hearts, as you say, and reduce their rates to, to this price point, to cancel, consider canceling future reservations, to make their homes available, to make their houses available for four, six, eight, nine, twelve months, they will turn their properties into a home for these survivors so that these survivors can get more quickly back onto the road to recovery. They have experienced so much trauma and the owners of these short-term rental properties really hold a key piece to all of us being able to come together as a community and to support these survivors and to get them back on the path of recovery. How soon do you think you can place some of these families? We've already been placing families, and we've been overwhelmed by the support of the property owners who have been in these initial phases while we've been standing it up and ramping it up right through this innovative process, reaching out individually to property owners on Airbnb and say, hey, your property's listed a little bit high. Would you be willing to to reduce your rate, this is what we're trying to do. And the, the overwhelming response of property owners has been so heartwarming. And that was Trista Spear, Deputy Director of the Department of Human Services, talking with us this morning about the RAP program. It's a way for families who, for whatever reason, don't qualify for FEMA funds to get into more permanent housing. The program was just launched on Friday, and so far, DHS has been able to get a half a dozen families into more stable housing. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Aloha United Way and the 2023 Holiday Wish List, connecting businesses and individuals to the needs of participating United Way agencies across the state. More at auw.org. The Maui County Council advanced a bill aimed at helping provide incentives to find rental housing for displaced fire victims. That's our reality check today. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christy Wilson is on with us. Good morning, Christy. Morning. So, yes, you had a marathon meeting. Yeah, it was a lot of public testimony, a lot of written testimony as well. And most of it was from residents who were very much in support of the measures to get more short-term housing into the long-term market to help some of the people who have been displaced. Yes, and the mayor, uh, Mayor Richard Bisson, announced you know his plan and introduced the bill. And really, this was the first hearing that we had on this issue. Yeah, it was just last week, in fact, that the mayor submitted the bill, Bill 131, to the council. And they moved on it very fast. And that was a lot of these bills that have to do with the property tax. Um, because, you know, the the assessments are done, even though the property taxes are paid and calculated on a fiscal year basis, the assessments are done at the beginning of the year, calendar year. So there's a 
great urgency to get a lot of these bills passed by the end of the year. So this bill was just submitted last week by Bisson. The council held its first meeting, which yesterday, first reading, and then they've scheduled the final reading for next Friday. So it's really moving expeditiously to get done by the end of the year. And the whole idea is to give property owners a tax break, you know, as an enticement, I guess, to get them to help out our families that are really struggling now. Right. You know, we have over 6,500 people who were still in hotels because there's no place to put them. And this would be interim housing while, you know, houses are built, people are rebuilding or there are other homes available to them, which is going to take a while. So, you know, they're looking for rental places for a year, two years for these people. And there just is nothing, even though there are units out there, the market has just been so tight and the rents have gone up even with the rental assistance that they've been getting from various agencies. It's just, there's no place for them to go. However, as the mayor pointed out, there are 25,000 units that include timeshares, non-owner occupied dwellings and vacation rentals, which we call also call short-term rentals that are out there. And the mayor said that we need only 2,700 homes for the families to be able to get them in more stable housing. So, so, you know, the county and others believe the units are there. It's just a matter of convincing the owners that this is something they need to do. And by offering essentially just wiping out their taxes, the property taxes that they would pay if they agree to rent at least 12 months to the people who have been displaced, that that might be enough of enticement. But I think it's a hard sell for a lot of them. Well, you know, obviously they can make so much more money with vacation rentals, but boy, this was certainly, you know, a a disaster nobody could have anticipated and the need is great. And so if they can, I guess, look at it as what short-term pain for right now, you take less in rent, but, you know, help the community get back on its feet. Right. Right. And that's the strong feeling in the community, of course. And the mayor and others have used the, the catchphrase has become a shared sacrifice, meaning exactly that, that um, if they forego, you know, for uh, their profits from these and the income is and in some of these units is crazy. Just forego that for a year or 18 months, you know, just to help out the community. You know, and this is also coming on, you know, amidst the context of kind of the hostility toward tourism among some quarters that I think really was heightened during COVID where the tourists weren't here and people saw what life was like, you know, the beaches and how kind of nice that was despite the economic impact. It's kind of piggybacking on that movement. And so I think some of what's fueling this too, I mean, there's really still quite a lot of anger, frustration and hostility toward visitors and even especially these short-term rentals that um, are in the community, especially now that they're so needed to help to help people. So, yeah. Well, um, well, we yeah. know that we know that they have been talking about maybe some disincentives as well as as hiking right. their rates. So we'll just have to see how this plays out. But thank you so yeah. much, Christy. Sure. That was reporter Christy Wilson with today's reality check. To read her stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from the University of Hawaii Foundation, connecting donors to the state's university, partnering and collaborating to problem-solve sustainability and conservation issues. More at uhfoundation.org. Kiana Villamar was born on Maui and raised on Lahaina Luna Road. She's the daughter of Filipino immigrants who came to pursue a better life. Today, she is a first-generation college student at Scripps College in California. Former HPR producer Stephanie Hahn talked to Villamar last month about her memories of Lahaina and questions that she has about home, displacement, and belonging. My parents immigrated here over 20 years ago. My mom, my dad, my sister... And they essentially came with nothing on their backs in hopes to give me and my younger brother uh, and my sister as well a better life here in the United States in terms of education and more job opportunities. And so we, re- we resided in Lahaina Luna Road. It's pretty much in, lo- in the heart of Lahaina. And I believe the population there is majority Filipino, Filipino-American, um, low-income people of color. You know, the immigration story were how they came here. It's I think about it every single day because I hold the title of being a first-generation college student and being the daughter of two immigrants. And so all the time, I feel like I'm pulled either which way between my family and my education. And as a daughter of two immigrants, I can imagine that They've never really felt like they belonged where they were. And similar to me growing up in Lahaina for the past 18 years, I didn't truly feel like I ever belonged. Especially, I I went to an all-white preparatory high school, and I was the top 1% of all the diversity there was at the school. And so I never really felt like I could connect with any one of my peers on any personal experiences, whether that be financial or whether that be experiences about my identity or how I would feel about problems at home, I could never really connect with anyone around me. And so it was hard. It was tough. And I've always grew up with the whole idea that I was never going to go to college because I knew from a very young age that If I were to go to college, it would be a huge financial burden on my parents. And so initially my goal was to stay at home in Maui and work to support my family, my grandparents, my parents, and hopefully that my brother would become the first to graduate college. But as I reflected back in high school, either I I go to college Either I attend Scripps College or I don't, and that I would stay back home and work for the rest of my life. And so I applied to essentially one college, and I got in. Miraculously, I got in. Hooray! And that was, hooray, yes, that was was my telltale sign that I, I should be in college and that I should prioritize my education. And that's exactly what I did. And to this day, although I am still in college, I still feel 
a sort of guilt about leaving my family back home while I'm in California. I haven't seen them in over a year now, so especially since the fires have happened, there's this psychological distance that I could never seem to overcome. So tell me, so you spent your whole life growing up in Maui, but you were in public school and then you were in a private school, but there were plenty of Filipinas. So so tell me a little bit about your social dynamic growing up when you were younger. Were you involved with the Filipino community? Um, were they all first-generation community members from a similar village or island in the Philippines? Yeah, so I felt most in touch with the Filipino community while I was in middle school. I went to Lahaina Intermediate School, and it was even hard um, staying in touch with the Filipino community there because many of my friends could barely speak English. And I... I, I'm fluent in understanding, but I'm not fluent in speaking, so already there is that language barrier. And on top of that, my school had a lot of students who would look down on the Filipino community and call them really offensive slurs, like fresh off the boat, and mock the way they would speak and mock the way they would be able to understand English and more or less learn in English as well. And because of that, I didn't really have a great bond with any Filipino members in my school. There was a huge barrier in terms of language and in terms of being afraid to be called those stereotypes as well. I, I couldn't speak Ilocano or Tagalog fluently, and so I didn't have the accent that they had. But since they had the accent, they were the ones targeted, and I was not. And that entire barrier between us. I, I couldn't understand what they would go through and they couldn't understand me. And so I've just always felt isolated and I never felt like I could be a part of the community that I so ever so wanted to be a part of. Reflecting about this community, what do you see as their needs? Tell me a little bit about the story of your own family's journey within this community with the fire and whatever has followed. In our community, my parents had a lot more friends. Um, I, I would call them uncles or my aunties, even though they weren't really blood related to me. That's kind of what I would just call my Filipino parents as friends. And it was great because I felt truly comfortable to be around any of them, whether it be 11 o'clock walking around at night, I, I knew I was safe and I knew I was comfortable. And that's something that I admire so greatly about the Filipino community back in Maui. And it's absolutely heartbreaking because now when I think about life back home, it's, it's life back home before the fires and life back home after the fires. And on my street, a lot of a lot of lives were lost, and my my family unfortunately knew many people who were lost. And just thinking about my parents and how they're in their mid fifties and how they're going to have to start over a whole new life with a whole new social scene and whole different friends and a whole new community that's absolutely heartbreaking. Because as immigrants, I feel like we need to do a sort of extra push to even fit into a new community leaving back our old ones. And now that 
Lahaina has just been ripped apart from so many people's lives. It'll never be the same. And maybe we'll have a new house in the next 10, 15 years, but the trauma will continue to be there and there's no way of getting rid of it. And that was part of a conversation we had with Maui-born college student Kiana Villamar last month. And we'll have more of that interview when we come back right after a break. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. Let's get back to that Hanaho segment with Maui's Kiana Villamar. She spoke with HBR producer Stephanie Han last month about whether she felt she could come home after her hometown of Lahaina was devastated this past August. Thinking about your place within the narrative of Maui, do you see yourself as returning there? What are the complications of going back or of, of leaving? as you are right now on the mainland, right? Mm -hmm. I haven't been home in almost two years, and I plan to go back home in December. And I I wasn't there to physically experience the fires and what has happened, and that's something that I'll never be able to understand the perspective of my family who has experienced it. And I've, I've seen the images online, and I've seen terror of everything burnt and the dead birds and animals on the floor. I've seen it all online, but it's never going to be the same as seeing it in person. And that's not something I can prepare for necessarily. And so when I go back home in December, I I imagine myself breaking down and crying because back home I've, I've memorized pretty much every single turn to get to my house, every single street sign and, and miles per hour sign and stuff like that. And I memorize all these things out of rage because I failed my first driving test there. But ironically, <laughs> it's, it's something that I, I always will remember. And my parents send me photos of our home that was burnt down. And I can't even tell what, what the kitchen is or what the mailbox is or what our, our living room is. And it's, it's, it's awful. I thinking to, I don't know if I'll live there ever in the future. All I can say is that I'm, I'm grateful that my parents are alive, but given the trauma that my parents have experienced, I'm not sure whether they want to live there either. It's, it's definitely a hot zone for fire and hurricanes, especially during the July and August months. There's always going to be hurricanes and possibly fires as well, and I don't think my parents or my family can keep going back to the same spot knowing, hey, my my house could very well get burned down again. Let's let's pre- prepare for the trauma that'll happen again. I don't think we're going to do that anymore. So do you think then that they would leave for the mainland 
I would say my parents are really attached to the community and really attached to the land. They immigrated to Hawaii, and so it's always going to be a place of comfort for them. I, I imagine they would move somewhere else on the, on the island, maybe in upcountry or go to Oahu. I have family as well in Oahu on my, on my dad's side, so I imagine maybe they could live there as well. But Lahaina will always be near and dear to our hearts, but I don't think that they could be put through that trauma again because I feel like I've taken for granted how comfortable our life was in Lahaina, the security of it all, how beautiful it was every single day, that I forgot that maybe the sun wouldn't rise the next day. And that's something that I'll always be cautious of now. My eyes are so wide open and that I, I urge my family to move somewhere else on the island towards up country so that this wouldn't happen again and they wouldn't have to relive that trauma anymore. Right. What is it that you think people should know about the Maui of the past? And what are some of your dreams that you have for the Maui of the future? I, I would want people to know that the Maui of the past is all built on community. And I remember going street to street, whether it's 7 a.m. or 11 p.m., I would say hi to anyone on the street and they would say hi to me back. And it's the kindness that is always returned by the people that'll always linger with me forever. It was such an amazing and beautiful and soft and genuine place where seemingly nothing ever went wrong. And the worst thing that could happen was a rainy day. And so truly it was a peaceful and magnificent place to live and start a family and create a future all built on the idea of security and a happy life. And for the future, I don't know where my parents will live and I don't know how the rebuilding process is going to look like, but I know that the community will always be strong and that's not something that could ever be taken away from us. Whether it's from large corporate companies trying to buy the land and try to repurpose it into more hotels and bigger Airbnbs, I know that the people will always fight for what is theirs given the history of Hawaii being illegally annexed and overthrown and constantly taken advantage of for its resources. I know that people around the world now have seen what has happened to Maui and have opened their eyes and that they're not going to let any more annexing or any more overthrowing going on because the land truly belongs to the people and it'll always remain like that. A very powerful interview. That was Maui-born college student Kiana Villamar talking about her experience watching her hometown of Lahaina recover from the fire while away at Scripps College in California. At last check, Villamar's family was granted a month's extension at the hotel where they were staying, and the family will be together when Kiana flies back to Maui next week. Today's Manu Minute features the rare Akia Polaau. 
the, these honey creepers are endemic to Hawaii Island, where they are relatively abundant until uh, the mid 20th century. Since the late 90s, the species has been declining, with a distinct population on the slopes of Mauna Kea disappearing entirely. Manu Minute host Patrick Hart shares with us its song as well as a few tips to spot it in the wild. Akiapola owl are large, bright yellow honey creepers that act like woodpeckers. They use their strong lower bill to peck holes in the branches of trees. Then they use their long, curved upper bill to pry out the tasty insect larvae. There are less than 2,000 of these birds left, mainly because of habitat loss and mosquito-transmitted avian malaria. And nowadays, their song can only be heard in high-elevation koa forests on the Big Island, where it's too cold for mosquitoes. In addition to controlling mosquitoes, planting koa forests would be a great way to increase populations of this very rare and important species. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about porcelain tile by Royal Mosa, made using recycled water and hydroelectric power to create floor and wall tiles inspired by trends in design and architecture.